All right, continuing on. So we're still on page four, our definition of virtue. Um, halfway down the page there, joy and ease. So virtue means that specific good acts become easy because you're habituated to do them. Acting in accord with a virtue is similarly is pleasant. It brings with it a certain amount of joy. So when you have the virtue, it doesn't leave you sad and despairing. It just naturally carries with it joy. Mm. Now I now want to introduce a, a whole other concept that is pivotal in the concept of what we mean by virtue. And this is what's called the mean. So if you remember when you did maths at school, there were different types of means. Um, well, um, the arithmetic mean, the, oh, I've got myself confused now. The mean, so there's a mean that's exactly between two points. That isn't what we mean when we talk about the virtuous mean. There's a mean in virtue. So virtue is always between two extremes. Um, so there's always an excess and a deficiency in any activity. You can do it too much, you can do it too little. Um, and the right way of doing it is going to be somewhere between those. But where it falls in between varies with different activities. So, um, in chastity, there are two extremes. There's the extreme of lust, in which we take more pleasure and excitement and attention to the pleasures of sex than we should. But there's also frigidity, in which we refuse to take the pleasure in things of the flesh that we should. Um, now, chastity is closer to frigidity than it is to lust, but it's still in between. Now let me point something else out here. If you are a lustful person here, and you're looking at chastity, then chastity will look to you like frigidity. And so when unchaste people attack the church, they're thinking that for us, frigidity is, and chastity is, is all the same. Conversely, there's a type of mistaken Catholic, well not, mistaken Christian piety, that it, from the position of frigidity sees chastity or what is genuine chastity and the enjoyment of the pleasures of the flesh as being the same as lust. Whereas actually there is a way of enjoying the pleasures of, of sex and relating to them that is between the extremes. And that's what we're aiming for in the virtue of chastity. So when you get it right the first time, and the second time, and the third time, you habituate yourself to the right measure on the line, between the extremes. Um, the other example is of um, courage, which is also called fortitude in different translations. That has two ways it can go wrong. So you can be a coward. Or, you can be foolhardy. 
So you go rushing into battle in a foolhardy way that isn't bravery, it's just being foolhardy. Or you can run like a coward. And again here, um, fortitude is closer to being foolhardy than it is to being a coward, but it's between the extremes. And how do you measure that? Well, with a lot of thinking, a lot of purifying of intellect and judgment. But you have to think quite a bit to get it right the first time. But the second time and the third time, you habituate yourself to think it right properly, easily. And similarly with chastity. So the teenager, struggling to know the difference between frigidity and lust, might need to read lots of books, go to a lot of talks, hear good sermons. But being formed, directed, measured repeatedly and choosing not just to obey, but to choose the chaste good recognised as such. Not just recognised by, I'm doing what I'm told, but I see the good for what it is and chosen again and again, I'm habituated to the right thing, the right measure. So that virtue is a need. <coughs> the arithmetic need. So it's not halfway, but it is between the extremes. And the person who is learning is going to kind of get it wrong on different sides of the exact measure as they're learning. But the closer they get by repetition, the easier it will be to be getting closer and more precise. Whereas you might begin by falling in lust, recoiling in frigidity at the whole sphere and you know that you by action by learning from your behavior by repetition getting it right again and again you acquire a steady semi uh, quasi-natural inclination to the right the, the good in concrete behavior which is why we need the mercy while we're learning yeah, because you're going to get it wrong, isn't it? Not the condemnation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you also see why this is a more hopeful way of talking about the moral life than mm -hmm. um, merely the law and the commands? Yeah. Because by talking to people about their capacity to grow and habituate themselves to the good, it's not just whether you have failed and broken the commands that matters, but your capacity that it's possible for it to become easier for you in the future by repetition. And while I won't go into any detail today, but because the virtues are related, if somebody's struggling in one virtue and they work on a similar related virtue, then their success in that related sphere will help them in that. 
So someone struggling with unchastity might find it easier to combat gluttony. But both gluttony and chastity um, relate to pleasures of the flesh. Different pleasures of the flesh, but they're both pleasures of the flesh. And battling with one and growing in one battle will naturally help them in the other. And so if they battle in the one they find easier, it will help them in the other one. It's also something you use with, 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 with children. You, you encourage them on the things that they're good at. Right. So that so the right motivation there, which then helps them apply that to the things that they're struggling with, mm. rather than condemn them for getting everything wrong in that particular sphere. Now look how good you are here. Yeah. Now see if you can pick up some of the good things to apply. It's about morale on the journey. Yeah, not to destroy something. If you're always, always being destroyed along the way, you give up. Mm. You're always told you got it wrong. You just, you just, you just you go by the wayside. Not for me. Where would anger work on that? Okay, so anger. Um, Anger, we don't have a word in the English language that helps us here. But there is just anger, and there is unjust anger. So, in the temple, the Lord Jesus got angry. He got very angry. But he had just anger. Now, we can have that same sentiment of anger in an unjust manner. Anger is what arouses in us in response to a perceived injustice. Now sometimes I get that wrong because I perceive an injustice where there isn't one. Mm -hmm. So somebody took the last cookie and I wanted it. And I feel angry um, because it seems unjust. Whereas actually maybe if I thought a bit harder I'd realise I had no right to the cookie or whatever else, that, mm -hmm. that I perceived something that just wasn't a cause for anger at all. The other way to battle anger, unjust anger, is I have it about something appropriate, but to an inappropriate degree. So I hear the music being played at Mass in my new parish, and I feel angry. Um, <laughs> But is that anger within me to an appropriate degree or not? Yeah. <laughs> it probably is. But, yeah. that, but that axis there, on the left, that, surely that on the left should be indifference or something, shouldn't it? Because um, if, if virtue is a mean, then the just anger is a mean between two extremes. So what's the opposite of unjust anger? It would be um, indifference, wouldn't it? Or Yes, it could be a different polarity. I, I think it's yes. a different polarity. polarity that there is a failure. Sorry? Between obsession. obsession. Yeah. yeah, that would be obsession versus indifference, wouldn't it? Um, indifference versus. Yeah, obsession, I think, yeah. works. Um, and that you can react too much or too little. But, but what is just anger a mean of? That's what I'm asking. Well, in this sense, it's about quantity. But it 
can also, there's a different factor in terms of whether I'm responding to something that, um, oh, sorry, no, I take your point, I take your point. Yes, so this is justice um, to me. Um, yeah. So in terms of quantity, then yes, you're right. It would be, um, it would be more like frigidity. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, otherwise you're turning justice into a theological virtue. Because you can't have too much of a theological virtue, can you? Yes, you're right. You're right. Um, Whereas it's just a cardinal virtue. Which brings me on to a point. Um, this holds virtue as a mean for what would be called um, the cardinal virtues. There are three theological virtues, um, faith, hope, and charity. And you can't have those too much or too little, or rather, you can't have them too much. You can't love God too much. You can't have too much faith in him. You can't have too much hope in him. You can have a hope in him that is inaccurately founded. So I jump out the window hoping that God will make me fly, well, I haven't hoped too much. I've put my hope in something that is just a false hope. But in as much as it is a matter of quantity, you can't have an excess of faith, hope, or love. So this holds for the cardinal virtues and those that are subsections of them. The cardinal virtues being um, fortitude, temperance, justice, and prudence. Excess and deficiency. So, so it would be like chastity. Too much, uh, too much, or too little. Um, temperance. Um, in the English language, we have it linked with the temperance movement, which is no alcohol at all. Actually, moderation would be. Yeah, that would be the a more accurate use of the word, what temperance means classically. Yeah, not use the word temperate climate. Yes. 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 Right, back to the notes. Um, bottom of the page there, advice. Bottom of page four, this is. And thinking again back to passions. What is a vice? A vice is a perversion of a passion. So you have the passion, but it's somehow being perverted, and you've got an, an oomph, an inclination to something evil, not something good. A vice is a perversion of passion, uh, uh, of reason, but reason still functions, I've said. So, i.e., a vicious man has corrupt reason and uses his reason to seek what is evil, but it's a corruption of so, I have the vice of gluttony. I want the ten donuts. And I use my thinking to get them. I know where I can steal some money to get me down the road to the place to buy the donuts. There's a whole chain of thinking I do. My reason is functioning, 
but it's a perverted reason because it's giving aimed at a but I'm using my thinking for a bad yeah. measure yeah so it's not that I'm an animal I am thinking but I've integrated all my thinking and reasoning by a, a false measure that's when I was in vice the habitus is oriented towards the sin fostered by repetition of a sinful interior act. Thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself. Now, if we look over the page on page five, there's a great summary of this in Aristotle um, in his distinction between vice and incontinence. And he distinguishes eight different types of people. And the key thing to grasp here before we go through the list is in English, in England, we can tend to think of virtue as self-control. Whereas actually virtue isn't just having self-control, it's about my passions wanting me to do the good. Because I've got this integration, not just self-control, my will commands it, but I've habituated my passions that I, I, I naturally... Uh, want the good and my will commands it. That's what virtue is. It's not just I have strong command myself, I will do it. That's not virtue. That's control, that's continence, but it's not virtue. Okay, let's go through our list here. Eight types of people according to Aristotle. First he says there are the beast-like who have neither reason nor will. Then he says there are the godlike who have perfect reason and perfect will, and seem to have been born thus. Then there are the continent, who refuse to follow their pleasurable appetites and follow reason instead. They are in control. I will not do the pleasurable thing. Versus the incontinent, who have good reason, but they are weak, and they follow pleasurable appetites instead. I know the right thing, but the pleasure pulls me. I'm not in control. I'm incontinent. Then two other categories that relate to pain. There are the soft, who have good reason, but are weak and do not resist the pain. Or the enduring, who resist pains and follow pleasure instead. Then the virtuous, who follow good reason, like the continent, but have trained their passions to pursue good and resist evil. Whereas the vicious follow a corrupted reason, but they still reason, they're not the brutes, um, and they have their passion in harmony with their corrupted reason. So both the vicious and the virtuous have harmonized their will, their intellect, and their passions but harmonise them to different goals. One being truth, the other being some perversion of reason. Do you see the thing that virtue isn't just self-control? 
And if we see that virtue isn't just self-control, then we see why actually the passions and virtue are good, desirable things. That it's not just that I want to control my passions, but I want to form them and direct them and habituate them so that they move me to the good, not just a command of my will. All right, the last thing I'm going to do with you today, there's a, a list of different virtues on the next two pages, and I'm not going to go through all of those. Um, but you can just note that there are a whole bunch of different types of virtues so that each individual activity of human life can be perfected. But section B on page 5, I want to look at the difference between um, acquired and infused virtues but are also called natural and supernatural virtues. So the natural virtues, also called the human virtues or moral virtues, these can be acquired by human effort, i.e. by repetition of the same interior act. So Aristotle didn't know God, didn't know Jesus, even without grace, just like an athlete can train his body in pursuit of a natural goal, you can get natural virtues. That are perfecting life at a natural level, by repetition. But the supernatural virtues, these are directly infused by God into the soul. We can cooperate with this process by repetition of the related acts. But the virtues are nonetheless infused. We don't cause them. So the athlete, it's his own natural impetus that is making him repeat and grow in virtues. But the supernatural virtues are from God, not from us. But we grow in them by repetition also. Because when we repeat the act, we remove the obstacle to grace infusing itself. I've given the example of temperance in food, i.e. moderation. So we can think of this A as a natural virtue. In this sense, temperance governs dieting in accord with reason. Dieting calls for food to be restricted to the amount the body needs. The needs of the body dictate neither too much nor too little food. I reason without faith can see this. The natural virtue is directed to the good of bodily health. So God is nowhere in that description, but this is a good thing. The natural virtue of temperance and eating, which are called dieting. But if we think about B as a supernatural virtue, temperance governs fasting in accord with faith. Not dieting in accord with reason, fasting in accord with faith. So you're aiming at a different end, and it's a different activity also involves eating. Fasting calls for less food than the body needs. Fasting subordinates the needs of the body to a higher end, namely union with God. The supernatural virtue is directed to the good of union with God. So the same activity, eating, can have a natural virtue associated with it and a supernatural virtue associated with it. 
Both involve self-control, but aiming at a different goal. The good of the body, or the good of your union with God. The good of the body is measured by reason. The good of your union with God is measured by what faith has taught us in scripture and tradition. So the challenge for us, say at Lent, is to not be living in natural virtue of dieting and saying, oh, you know how many pounds I've lost during Lent? Which is subverting the supernatural goal to the natural. Because actually we want to do it the other way around, that yes, I might be thinking about, the, my, aware of the good that's being done to my body, but what I'm actually aiming for is the union with God that comes from fasting. see that almost any activity we do has a natural and supernatural dimension to it. And that we can raise it to that higher end by doing it for God. And sometimes, doing it for God instead of just at a natural level will shift its position on the scale. Sometimes it might not move the scale issue at all, but it does inwardly transform it because it's aimed at a different Union with God rather than just getting a lighter body. 
but to, to throw in there, um, getting a lighter body is a virtue, it's a different virtue. Um, so it's, it's the natural virtue of a healthy body. And that is a good thing. Um, so what this perspective distinguishing the natural and the supernatural does is it does enable us to see what is truly good, not to, um, to there's a type of Jansenism that dismisses the body and all those things. No, we say, yes, it is good, but it's not the same good, it's not the same end as if you're transforming it in union with God. Exactly, and that lifts people up. Whereas when we don't talk, we don't have that, that language of that which is supernatural. We, we, stay, we stay down here. And in worship, another, you know, we are trying to lift people, playing our part, either as priests lifting people to God or as just worshippers as well, being lifted to God. When we, when we avoid this, this sort of language and, and appreciation understanding, we're actually denying the very thing for which we are created. Or am I just am I talking? No, I, I know where you're coming from, but I think it's part of the liberalisation uh, or liberalising the gender. But seven years we've, we've been we've been victims. Some of us have been. Sorry. I've been a victim to the church. That's, 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 that's why I'm in my mind about 